welcome. This is Jane Sigford, convener of the podcast Views and Voice Above the Noise, which is hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. The podcast today is an interview with John Tyne, a retired superintendent. He liked retirement so much that he's done it three times. John was a longtime superintendent of Roseville Public Schools, where he was the superintendent for 17 years, although he worked in the district for 27. He then did an interim as superintendent of St. Paul Public Schools and Recorey. Plus, during his career, he was superintendent for a short time in Clara City and for EMID, East Metro Integration District. Oh yes, and also in McRae. Because of his broad experiences of rural, suburban, urban, and integration districts, I was interested in his perspectives on the many issues we all face. His answers often give comparisons among the districts, which provides interesting insights. Roseville is a suburb of St. Paul, where he spent the longest time. It's a district of over 7,500 students. At one time, the district had 13,000 students. As a first-ring suburb, it has seen many changes over the years. It is constantly perceived as one of the best schools in the northeast corner of the metro area. Clara City is in west-central Minnesota, McRae and Recorey are in central Minnesota. As I have done these podcasts, I come to realize that each speaker has themes to their conversations, which may come from their personal experiences. John might not like me to say this, but it's apparent from his conversation that he is a humble leader. He even talked about how a superintendent needs to be a servant leader. Another important theme of his was about the importance of relationships within a team, to respect others, and to listen to them. When asked about the role of the superintendent, he often veered into conversations about teachers because, as he says, they are the ones that do the real work, that of educating our kids. He sees the role of the superintendency as migrating from management to leadership. Plus, he has many adages that are welcome advice. They could almost be printed as quotable quotes from John Tyne that could be hung from our office walls or our refrigerators, depending on where you want to put them. All that being said, let's listen to John. John's journey is an interesting one. Yeah, it was a real journey. Uh, I, I never really enjoyed school all that much. What I found is a place where I really feel comfortable. I love kids. I love to be around people. It's been just a joy. Funny how those things work. You start and you plan very short term, and then it turns into be a long-term journey. It's been a wonderful trip. I graduated from a small rural community in central Minnesota, a community called Clara City. And in fact, the interesting thing is I spent a lot of time in the principal's office. And 50 years later, they hired me as an interim superintendent, and I got to spend some more time in the superintendent's office. So I served as superintendent there for six months, and it was a real treat to go back. 50 years later, I guess it's kind of interesting. Yes, you can go home once in a while. So how did you end up as a superintendent? That's a good story, too, or at least I think it's a good story. A fellow that was a counselor in the school district that I worked in in rural Minnesota, Osakis, Minnesota, where I started my teaching career in Minnesota, he had a lot of faith in me. He said, really, you should spread the wealth a little bit, and you should do a little bit more than you've been doing. You really love what you're doing, and I think you're good at it. He encouraged me. His name was Lyle Schlofeld. He was a school counselor. Probably nobody in Minnesota knows who he is, but he changed my life dramatically. 
So you became a principal first or not? No. He, he, was, a, he was a school board member in a neighboring school district, and he hired me as a business manager. My, my initial degree is in business and physical mm-hmm. education. And he hired me as a business manager, activities director. And that's when I got the bug and I found out I really liked that. School was, uh, I found the joy in school and the joy in learning. It's been a great trip, you know, headed back to school. And, you know, there were a couple of stops in between. At one time, my wife and I owned the local newspaper. And we ran a newspaper for four years. Uh, Osakas, Minnesota. Yeah, it was great. It was a wonderful experience. Made me very aware of a lot of things I wasn't aware of. So I was a superintendent in Roseville. And I was there for, that's the longest part of my career. I was a superintendent for a little over 17 years. Spent 27 years in that district. I was a superintendent in St. Paul for a little over a year. Then in McRae, which is a small rural community in central Minnesota. And then also in Recorey, which is a medium-sized, really lovely school district in the middle of the state by St. Cloud. It's been very interesting. And, you know, somebody mentioned to me, you're one of the few superintendents that I know that worked in a very small rural school and a very large urban school. It's been kind of an interesting transition between the four of them. What are some of the accomplishments you've had in your role as superintendent? I don't, I don't look at them, and I know this is going to sound hokey. It's been, I've been so blessed to work with a wonderful team, really some great people. And probably the things I'm proudest of as a member of that team is one, the equity work that we did in Roseville. We established an equity vision, and we were the first, probably the first district in the metro to really do that. And it wasn't because of me, it was because of the great team that I worked with. We developed property in Roseville. We built our own housing subdivision, if you can believe that. Turned the profit back to the school district and raised five and a half million dollars. Um, other things that I think were really important is during my time as superintendent, and that is over 20 plus years, we went through a lot of boom and bust cycles budget-wise and a lot of downtimes. And during that time, I never laid off one certified teacher in over 22 years. I've always said that we're not in the banking business, we're in the kid business. And my goal was not to build up a big fund balance. My goal was, I always thought, if you give me the money, you expect me to use it for good things. And that's what we tried to do. And we live by it. I'm never a big believer in huge fund balances. I know you have to have a positive amount. But I always figured that we invested in kids. What are some of the things that you might do differently? You know, one of the things that I would do differently is put my family at a higher plane than I put them for work. I put work probably ahead of a lot of things. I would always tell my staff, if you have a daughter or son that's in a kindergarten program, you should go to it. And if you need time, I'll make sure you have time. If your son's playing in a football game and there's a meeting, let's see if we can get it so you can go. Family always comes first. We'll get our pound of flesh. We'll get our dollars worth of work out of you. And I've found that employees who feel like they're part of a family and part of a team perform better and at a higher level, and you get more than you ever, ever paid for. You've worked in many school districts, from rural to suburban to urban. What are some of the differences? Sometimes there's a little bit of, and I don't want to say there's sophistication because it's not sophistication, but it's just number and it's community norms. I'd say community norms are the biggest difference. Sometimes uh, when you're in uh, St. Paul, if uh, the students showed up at school with shotguns in the trunk, you'd be pretty excited about that. If you're in rural Minnesota, that's not such a big deal because they're part of the trap team. Ag is a big thing in probably rural Minnesota, not quite such a big thing in St. Paul, but 
you should remember St. Paul has a 4-H club too. You can offer more opportunities. In a larger school, there's an opportunity to try to meet the needs of every student. Sometimes in a smaller community, the resources aren't there to differentiate enough to cover the needs of uh, students that might have different sexual preference, probably are without the means to go to college. Uh, Sometimes in rural communities, kids think that they can't achieve, but really they can, and they just need a chance to show their stuff. How are school districts alike? That's one of the things that I found out about schools, small schools and large schools. There's so many things that are in common and so many things alike. People have asked me, what's the biggest difference between St. Paul with 38,000 and McRae with 700 students? And the difference is, surprisingly, what they're so much alike, how much they're alike. The kids are very much alike. Kids are kids wherever you go. They're very excited about school. And at the same time, they want to get out of there as soon as they possibly can. And once they leave, they want to come back as soon as they can. But I found out that small town boards care just like big town boards. They have the same dreams for their students. They have the same commitment to their students. You have, it's a bigger number. But other than that, it gets right down to people. And that's the business we're in and how you take care of them. And that's the responsibility that I felt as a superintendent. How do you work with the people that you have responsibility to? I found it very enjoyable. John saw a difference in the level of services among the various size districts. Parents are more aware of their what rights and they should be. I have my own theory and think that the responsibility for our students and our communities with disabilities, it should be a state responsibility and not an individual school district responsibility. It should be the responsibility, but the resource should come from the state. That's my theory. And every student deserves a right to find success, no matter what their gifts. Every child has gifts. Every child. There's not one child that doesn't have a gift that needs to be developed and blossomed. And so we just have to work on that a little bit. That's a big difference. You talked about rural, urban, suburban. The thing that I found is that in rural areas, find adequate support and resources for special education. It's usually not located right in the district. Usually there's a cooperative or some other things that are used to provide those services. But I I don't think they're quite up to the standards of suburban. That's my theory. But the same is true in the urban centers too. Resources are kind of so short. Our suburban schools really have additional resources to meet those needs and tend to deal with uh, students with disabilities at a higher level than probably the other two levels. Have you seen a change in the role of the superintendency during your time in administration? When I started, I think it was more of a management position. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes people forget. They worry, they worry too much about the operation of the district and not about what we're really there for. Sometimes superintendents, and I understand what can get a superintendent in trouble really quick is when the finances don't balance out. But really why you're there is to provide a quality education for the students and families and members of the community. That's the biggest change, I'd say. It's gone from a management more to leadership. In other words, it's how do you provide the tools for your staff to do the things that we need to do in the community. And a lot of times that's through the leadership that you provide. It's not just about dollars and cents. It's about how you can motivate people, how you make them feel like what they do is really important. And that they, uh, 
They remember why they're there. I think the big thing, a challenge that superintendents face now are dealing with people in mid-career, people who started with a dream and then have kind of lost the vision along the way, kind of fall into a rut. And if I could wish anything for school districts, it would be that we could take people in mid-career, especially teachers, classroom people, people who do the work, and reinvigorate them and get them back on track because sometimes I think they lose their way a little bit. You talked a little bit about how the superintendent role has changed. What's different for teachers? They're on duty 24-7. You know, it used to be at least when you go home on Friday night, you might have a weekend off. Or at the end of the day, probably you wouldn't hear from anybody until the next day. Or you may receive an anonymous letter. Now, email is a blessing and it is also a curse. Parents, Parents are more aware of what their rights and responsibilities happen to be, and they have different expectations than they had in the past. So that's put a lot of pressure on staff to work at a higher level. And I don't think uh, we've probably prepared our staff for that the way that we should, and I don't think we're giving them the support that we should. My own personal opinion is that teaching positions should be a year-round position. It should receive the support and the respect that it's due. If you travel in other countries, educators are held in very high esteem, very high esteem. And in the United States, sometimes as the old saying, my brothers would always say this to me, those that can do, those that can't teach, those that can't teach, administrate, and those that can't administrate end up as superintendents. So there you go. I sometimes worry that they need to be loved a little more than they have been in the past. Everybody talks about how wonderful teachers are. When you talk to people, every student or every adult you talk to has a teacher that made a difference in their life. But when it comes time to provide resources or support or deal with an issue, then they kind of forget that a little bit. John talked earlier about the fact that the superintendent role has changed from a management role to that of a leadership role. His description of what that looks like includes an illustration to the meaning of a line from a George Herbert poem. A dwarf on a giant's shoulder sees the further of the two. John uses this idea to illustrate his belief about the job of the superintendent. I do too. That's one of the things in rural communities. I think they look more, a little bit more toward the uh, management side. They lean toward the management side rather than the leadership side. How do you marry those two? First of all, when you're a superintendent, you stand, in, you stand on the shoulders of everybody in that district. Everybody supports you. You are nothing without folks that are there. What you need to do is show them the respect that they deserve and give them the support they deserve. How to do that? Everybody's important. Everybody counts, no matter what their job happens to be or what they do. And the best way you can marry those two is show that respect to everybody that you work with. You need to be, and I know this is hokey, but you need to be a servant leader. Is dealing with mental health issues part of the complexity that teachers are experiencing these days? A student walks in the, into school and has a broken leg. We, make, we run all over trying to make sure that they're able to get to class, and then we have elevators, etc. If a student comes in and has, is mentally ill, we don't deal with that as well as we should. I think we need to stick more resources. And I think we see it played out every day on TV. I don't know if, when this is going to go on, but just today there was a young man that murdered a, a young lady in Iowa, and he's a homeless person 
And people aren't homeless because uh, they have everything together. They're homeless because usually it's a case of mental illness. They need the support. And we've kind of just taken a segment of society and just pushed them off to the side and said, you're on your own. I hope it all works out for you. Complain when things don't work out the way we want them to, or there's a tragedy. When I asked John how he thought the role of the superintendent would change, it led to a discussion about trust, relationship, and teams. It'll, it, it'll grow and it'll change. It's more of a leadership. It's more of moving it, moving the whole thing forward. Sometimes when they talk about it, it used to be that if you uh, if you were a good manager, that's what the, that's what we wanted as a good manager. And I think the day of the managers come and gone. Now a lot of districts engage a, a business official or an operations manager who takes care of the insurances, etc. One of the things I found out in a smaller district, one of the individuals I followed was a very good manager, took care of everything. i tell you what a principal mentioned to me one time. There was an issue out in the front, and I was in the office, and I heard it. The principal was dealing with it. Instead of going out there, I let the principal deal with the individual and the parent. Afterwards, she came in, and she thanked me for that and said, you know, you allowed me to deal with that situation, and you did not rush out, take it over. I think what superintendents have to learn, if I could give them one piece of advice, would be trust the people you work with. 99% of the time, they're going to perform in a way that's superior to what you would perform. Trust your people, but hold them accountable. One of the themes of John's discussions is about treating people with civility and respect. He does see a change in how people are acting, and he is concerned about that. I have to say this. It's becoming more common because our elected officials have shown disregard and have been rude, demeaning. That has spread to our kids and to other levels of society. And what we're finding in schools is our kids are acting that way. I do have to say this. I was in Recorey and I worked at Recorey Public School. And the first day I walked in, I met a young man. He said, good morning, how are you? And opened the door for me. And I thought, my goodness, this what a fine young person. And that was the rule and not the exception. I found that school to be, students there were very well behaved, very respectful, hardworking, conscientious. But that I found in almost every school district I've been in. I worry that that may change with the role models that we have in our elected position. I mean, what, what basically has happened, they've been given permission to be, uh, we don't want any immigrants. We don't want this. We don't want that. We, we'll, we'll make fun of people. We'll call them names. And that seems to be okay. It wasn't okay when we were in kindergarten. It's not okay now. It wasn't okay when we were in third grade. It's not okay now. It's never okay. And we would never let our kids treat us that way. At least I hope. It's almost like Katie bar the door. Anything goes, you can, you're responsible only for yourself. We don't care about others. And we don't necessarily have to even tell the truth. Do you see a difference in the attitude toward and how people deal with immigration between the different schools you've worked in? Yes, I do. Uh, I was very proud of, of St. Paul. I'm very proud of Roseville because I thought they really showed a lot of uh, compassion and they opened the door. Now, there are exceptions to that, I know, in every community. But overall, uh, the boards were very receptive to people moving to the community, giving them support, understanding where they uh, come from. 
you know, there there are some real racial biases there, whether we want people want to believe it or not. Whenever you hear somebody say that they're not racist, well, then, you know, look out. And what I found in rural communities is a lack of, I wouldn't say understanding, but experiences. Experiences, the more experience you have, the broader you, I believe. In, in rural Minnesota, when you run into a family that's adopted a student of color and moved into an almost all-white community, that individual is accepted into the community and is part of the community. For the most part, it's on the outside that they look, and sometimes it gets a little clouded. And the papers don't help, you know, when you take a look at it. Comments made about certain parts of the city, where you live, who lives there, what they do. There's a, some, a misunderstanding about the needs, the wants. Let me tell you something. I've never met a parent, or very, I, I can't think of one I've met, that didn't say, I really love my kids and I want to take care of them. I want the best for my kids. I want my kids to go to a good school. I want them to be treated respectfully. All of us want those things, no matter where we live or who we are. Sometimes that message gets a little lost, and we assume one group of people doesn't care as much as we do, or they are not, not, as, not as deserving as we are. That's not so. It is really, that is, a, I think the experience for kids is really great. And rural Minnesota is changing. And what they're finding out is that, you know what? They're just like me. They're just like my children. They're just like my family. They have all the wants, desires, loves. They have all the faults that we do. They're not any different. They're the same. And that's sometimes that's hard when you've lived in a sheltered community. We, you know, Roseville is now, when I first started there, we were 9% students of color. When I left, the students of color outnumbered our white students. So it was a transition for us to go through. But it was really, and I have to give a lot of credit to our staff, to our equity team, our board. Our board really stepped up to the plate. I, my experience in St. Paul was, as I said, I told the board chair when I left, I said, it's almost like I've never worked anyplace else. You talked about the change in roles of the superintendent from manager to more of a leadership position. What would be a good training program for these future leaders? Here's even a better example. If you're going into a law firm and you graduate from law school, what they do is they bring you into the law firm and they spend six to eight months with you and they pay you, pay you pretty well to be there. And they help you get your license and certification and they prepare you for the culture of the legal world. Doctors do kind of the same thing when you're a doctor. But in education, what we tend to do is we take a person and say, we're going to bring you in and we're going to have you work for a semester. We're not going to pay you anything, of course. So you're going to have to live on beans and canned soup. We've provided mentors. I've worked as a mentor for a number of superintendents. I don't know if I did them any real service. I think it would be helpful for the, the state or others to provide some sort of support or training on site to work in a district, to be at the table, to make those decisions and to be part of it. Sometimes I think, uh, I believe, that school districts, first of all, they worry about the money. Of course, we always worry about the money. Second thing they always worry about is uh, we've got too much overhead. We've got too many administrators and too many bosses. 
But I don't know how we expect people to be good at their craft if we don't give them an opportunity to to learn. And it is so much different between uh, preparing a budget and presenting it and explaining it and making sure all the needs are met in our community or what we can meet than reading about it in the textbook or even bringing it in and discussing it in a group setting. You have to be uh, on the court. Some people now are talking that leadership is more collaborative and less top-down. Is there a way to change the hierarchy of schools, or is that even advisable? I, I personally, I believe in a flatter organization. That you know, you know, a lot of times what you have is a cabinet, and it might have the superintendent and four or five top administrators. And I moved away from that a little bit when I was in Roseville, and we moved to a cabinet that not only included the administrative team. Uh, and it, it, was, it was a little larger, but it also included their administrative assistance or their clerical support. And because what I found out is that they probably know more about what's going on than probably somebody who's the supposed super, supervisor. It flattened the organization a little bit, and it, it shared information. When I first started, I had an administrator tell me, I asked a question one time, and the administrator said, that's on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. And I thought... You know what? When I grow up, I'm never going to treat anybody like that. I'm not going to be that kind of person. And uh, I think it really uh, is being open and being free. It makes you a better organization. Sometimes we don't want to share anything. And surely there are things that are not for public consumption. That might be personnel data, etc. But really, one of the things I'd say is don't be afraid to work and trust your team. And if there's somebody in there that's not working out for you, do yourself a favor. Sit down and talk to them and say, this is not working out. You, you deserve better and so do I. And sometimes we don't do that. Certain times you need to a smaller, more on target group of individuals to deal with certain situations. But I think, I honestly believe that, you know, the more, uh, more people make better decisions than fewer people. You still have that responsibility as a superintendent. It's my responsibility, and I hold it, and I take it. But it's very helpful to hear all the points of view. I've always laughed at people who would be part of that that would say to me after they left and became a superintendent, you know, it was really easy to give advice when I was sitting there and knew I didn't have to make the final decision. It's a little different now that I'm a superintendent. And I hate to use a sports analogy, but I will. You're always the last batter up. Somebody probably goes through the teacher and I've always believed that you solve the problem at the appropriate level. And what I mean by that, if it's an issue with a student, parents like to do a jump to the superintendent or to the principal. Really, what you need to do is you start at, at the level that's appropriate. And when it ends up, people are always going to say, it was John or it was Jane who made the bad call. And that goes with the territory. Another theme of John's is about retirement. He must like doing it because he's done it several times. He has some insights and advice to those future retirees. That's one of the tough things about retirement. Uh, when you're a superintendent, everybody looks around the table for you to make probably a decision. Now nobody looks around the table. I just have to decide what's for dinner. So find something that is really helpful to fill the time. My wife's an attorney. As she slows down, she can take it in increments. She has a saying, you eat what you kill. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like you, you can say, no, I'm, I'm going to go to four days a week or I'm only going to, et cetera, et cetera. I'm only going to have 
this number of clients to work with. When you're a superintendent, you're either in the game or out of the game. And if you're out of the game after you've been in the middle of it, especially in a district with a lot of activity and lots of stuff going on, it's uh, it's a little bit of a challenge. I have to admit that. The part-time things that I've happened to be involved with, I've really enjoyed because it remind they reminded me why I should retire. And I think too, there is a time and a place, and when that time comes, then it's you need to move on. But that doesn't mean you curl up in a ball. There are lots of things you can do in life and keep yourself active, keep it involved, keep your mind active, keep your health up, take care of yourself. What I found with superintendents is they usually don't take very good care of themselves physically. How did you know when it was time to retire? Well, I took a look at where we were in our district. I wanted to leave a good place for the new person. I wanted to pass one more referendum. That was one of my, that's one thing I'm very proud of. I've never lost a referendum. I wanted to make sure that we had the referendum in place so that a person who followed me wouldn't have to do that right away. I knew that we had some other big things that were going to be happening, but it would take three or four years. And and rather than try to work another three, four years and be the person who never left, the crazy uncle in in the attic, I wanted to make sure that I prepared well for that individual but left them room to grow their own initiatives. And then hopefully I'm smart enough when, if they, if that person wants to talk to me, they will. And they have, I'm very touched that they've reached out to me. I have a good working relationship with all the people that have followed me. How did I know? I thought um, there was time. They always say, you know, when you know, it really was, Uh, that was the time to do it. It was the right time for the district. It was the right time for me. How do schools in the future need to change? They need to focus on what's good for kids, not what's good for schools or staff. Sometimes we do the same old thing because it's easy to do, and we don't look ahead. We're not on the edge a little bit. I don't think you should always. The transition point, I remember, too, when we went through the thing where there are always fads that happen in school districts, and we jump on board right away, and we have an awful lot of old whiteboards around, and and we have an awful lot of old smart boards around. And we have, I think we have to be progressive, but not over the top. Spend some time on R&D. I always look at 3M. And 3M is a company that is, I forget their goal, and I can't remember the percentage. They have a significant amount of their revenue has to come from products developed within the last five years. And I think what schools have to do is just sit on the hands and take a look, they don't do a lot of research and a lot of R&D. We've always undervalued curriculum and staff development. I think that's what this is, schools are all about. I think we have to spend less time worrying about how many lunch tables we have in the lunchroom and more about what we're teaching in the classroom and how we motivate kids. People say, gee, my son or daughter has the same tests that I had when I was in Mrs. Johnson's room. That kind of tells me that not a lot of things are happening. One of the things I've noticed, too, when I was in Roseville, uh, we had a situation where there was a teacher that was very successful. Started in the 70s, early 70s. Roseville was a predominantly white district. A lot of high, well-educated individuals and families, and it was an affluent suburb. Used to call itself the Edina of the East. Mm -hmm. Then what happened over a period of time, the population that we served changed. 
teacher just couldn't adjust to that and couldn't change. And all of a sudden, instead of having uh, Bobby and Susie, it was Kareem. It was a little bit different population we were serving, and then she just couldn't adjust to it and couldn't, couldn't deal with kids and didn't know how to reach them. Uh, that's where staff development comes in. You know what? Staff development is the biggest waste of money in the world if it's not done right, and it's the best. You can never spend enough. Teachers are never going to totally embrace it because you want to feel comfortable. I think our goal is to make teachers feel a little uncomfortable and to push them. We always do better when change comes along. I kind of like change personally. I embrace it. But there's a lot of people that, hey, just leave me alone. Let me shut my door. And we're going to talk about dinosaurs again, and it's going to work well. And I think the movement, you know, toward we're going to help set curriculum or we're going to design what's coming down the road and Common Core, that's really been driven because there have been a lot of places where things have just fallen through the creeks and our cracks and our kids haven't been prepared. So, what yeah. type of staff development would be meaningful for superintendents? Oh, man. It's not getting on a plane and flying to Miami for a conference, that I know. I think it's more hands-on, and I think, I think it's great to have the big-time speakers. That's fine, and that's good, because they motivate and they keep you going. I had a chance to hear some really great speakers. But how do I, tr- how do I take that motivation and take it down to McRae or Ricori or East Metro Integration District and turn it into something that's going to be successful? I think what would be helpful is I found out I like to see people who are doing something in a district that I can identify with, see what they're doing, and then see how I might be able to implement that change by district. I think it's a combination of both. Hey, this is the cutting edge in California, but we also need to know what they're doing in Wayzata, and we need to know what they're doing in Wilmer. And in, where was it, Worthington? If I'm in Ricori right now, and I'm going through a situation where we have uh, three large industries. And uh, one of the big industries is Golden Plum or Pilgrim Poultry. I'd look down at Worthington and I'd say, I want to know what they're doing in Worthington because they've gone through this. I want to know what they're doing in Wilmer because I, they're going through this right now. If they're having struggles, then we could struggle together. Or we could learn together. Or we could grow together. And I think that's kind of the more meaningful kind of staff development for leaders. And I think there are some key people that we never hear about. We don't know about, we don't know their names. They're working in East Overshoe and they're just knocking the socks off it. The community loves them, the staff loves them, kids are learning, they perform well, they're innovative, they're smart, they're hardworking. We don't even know their name. What's the superintendent's role in providing professional development for the staff? When you hire a CEO in a company, you don't usually put uh, the best engineer or the best salesman. You put the person that can get all of the individual components of the organization to work together. And then what a superintendent is supposed to do is to get develop a team that's going to perform at a high level. Part of that is to provide the support necessary to have sound, well-grounded curriculum with great staff development that's supported. The idea that you bring people in three days early and sit them in a corner and say, well, this is, the, this is, this is what we're going to do this year. They usually don't want to be there. Have you ever been to a, a pre-start-of-school-year workshop 
or the elementary teachers were insane. What I really need to be is in my room. A staff member came to me and I'd rather go to my classroom and I get more out of that building a bulletin board than I ever would from anything you give me. And he said, you know, you administrators, you hop on a plane and you go to these conferences and you can go to all these different little things and you learn whatever you need to learn. And I thought about that. So what we did was we put together a, a bulletin, a back-to-school workshop bulletin. And it had all kinds of options. Staff could go in and they could go to any one of the options they wanted. And there were certain things that they had to go to. You know, like if we had the governor there, it would be nice to have somebody in the room. But basically what it did is it helped our custodians who could go and learn about a right-to-know work or they could learn about us, whatever it happened to be. Same thing for our food service, same thing for our staff. We tailored it, tried to tailor staff development for the needs, and especially our non-certified and our elementary people. Because I think sometimes we, we have the tail wag the dog. This, the secondary folks tend to get a little more staff development than other members of our learning community do. I'm closing the podcast with many words from John. At the beginning, I had suggested that John has given us several quotable quotes worthy of making a John Tyne almanac and posting these sayings as constant reminders about the value of what we do. His almanac is not as long as Ben Franklin's, but then neither is his hair. I hope you enjoy the quotes as much as I did. When you get all done, it's kind of like uh, the team should say, look what we did. It's not about I, it's about we. Don't worry about money. Money will take care of itself. Sometimes we spend all of our time worrying about what it's going to cost or how we're going to do it. And keep the big picture in mind. Don't, as somebody said, don't pull vault over chicken shit. Don't do that. You know what I mean? And don't get, don't let your ego get involved in something because it'll get you into, okay. Enjoy your work. Love your work. Love what you do. Always remember that the kids are while you're there. One last piece of advice. I've always said this. When people say, why did you make that decision? People are going to criticize you. Remember, if they had the same information at the same time, you know, they'd probably most likely make the same decision. This is Jane Sigford signing off. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net. Thank you for listening.